there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Are you interested in working at the CIA or the Defense Intelligence Agency, known as the DIA? Or perhaps you'd prefer to work at the National Security Council or for a big defense contractor. Or maybe you just want to learn more about what it's like to work in intelligence and national security. Well, my next guest is an expert in all of the above. But before I introduce you to Larry Hanauer, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's time for Coffee's weekly newsletter that comes out on Monday mornings to give you an exclusive overview of the professionals we're going to be featuring that week. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four coffee.org, and the sign up box is right there on the home page. Now, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Larry Hanauer, the Vice President for Policy at the Intelligence and National Security Alliance, also known as INSA a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that works to promote public-private partnerships within the national security and intelligence communities. Before joining INSA in October 2016, Larry spent more than 20 years working on national security issues in the executive and legislative branches of government on Capitol Hill, which obviously is a legislative branch, and a leading think tank, and at a large defense contractor. To learn more about Larry's really varied and interesting career, please check out the show notes for this episode where we've got all the details on the many jobs Larry has had to date. And if you're interested in learning more about how to break into this field, we've also recorded an Espresso Shots interview which focuses on exactly that topic. It may or may not have been released ahead of this episode. So again, check out show notes to find out. And one final public service announcement. We are living in the midst of a construction site and there's probably going to be some saws going and banging and hammering and whatnot. I apologize in advance. I hope it isn't too distracting. Larry, I am so excited to have you here. Very glad to be here. Face, having a little Java with me in the afternoon. And it's just such a treat because usually I'm here all by myself and I... I'm like talking to the walls as opposed to It's getting... much more fun to be here in person than on a Skype call. Exactly. Exactly. So let us start off by getting a little more clarity into your impressive title, Vice President for Policy, what it is INSA does and what you do to support your members. Right. So INSA is a trade association. That's sort of a very inside the beltway kind of beast that represents companies that do work for the intelligence community and for the defense department. So these are, for the most part, big consulting firms, the big defense manufacturers, cybersecurity firms, all kinds of companies that work or want to work inside the intelligence community. My role there is to focus on the content. So as a trade association, we advocate for these companies with the executive branch and occasionally with the legislative branch. We try to make government more effective and more efficient by bringing some private sector expertise, but also by letting the government know what issues affect the contractors. 
government agencies rely heavily on contractors to provide extra labor or to provide expertise they don't have in-house. So when government changes the rules, for example, on how to get a security clearance, that has a really big impact on the firms that support them. So we work with the government agencies to let them know how proposed rule changes, how policy proposals affect the companies that support them. Got it. Could you give us an example Mm -hmm. of a policy that has been a priority for INSA membership and what you did to try to move that ball forward? Sure. A great example is security clearance reform. Anyone who's listening who's tried to break into government in national security issues knows it's pretty hard to get a security clearance. It's complicated. It takes a long time. It can take a year and a half or more to get the clearance needed to start working. And that doesn't work for either the agencies or the contractors because they can't hire the people they need and get to work. So the government has been trying to change the processes by which they do investigations and clearances. And the companies that support the intelligence agencies wanted to make sure government knew how they were affected as well. So we organized a bunch of roundtable discussions with senior government officials and senior company executives. We have a standing committee that meets once a month to share views on how the proposals affect both government and industry. And we've written some papers, some white papers that we then brief out to government agencies that explains how the clearance process is going to affect both government agencies and industry. So in that way, we're trying to make the process more effective and make it work better for both the intelligence agencies and the companies that support them. Great. As I said in the introduction, you have worked in a variety of capacities in the national security world. Mm -hmm. One of those places was from the legislative side of our government on Capitol Hill. I know that you believe getting experience working on the Hill, if you're interested in this Mm -hmm. national security world, is actually foundational. Why is that? It's largely because the money and the legal authorities for everything the government does comes from Congress, and very few people understand how Congress works. So if you can go spend a few years on Capitol Hill, either in an individual House member's or senator's office, or even better yet, once you have a little more experience on a committee staff, you'll get some really in-depth insight into where the money comes from, how executive branch proposals are shaped, and you'll get an insight into an entirely different side of the government that most people don't understand. From a career development perspective, this is really important because if you understand something that most people don't, you're suddenly very valuable. So any insights you can share on how Congress works would really enhance your job prospects, not just in whatever job you get next, but for years later. I completely agree. And I'm coming at it from a very different perspective. I've never worked in the national security world per se the way you have. I've Mm -hmm. covered national security Mm -hmm. as a journalist. When I went to work for Mercy Corps, Global Humanitarian Organization, to head up their policy shop, one of the people who I hired, who was the director of policy at Mercy Corps, had worked on one of the appropriations subcommittees on the House side. It was through her that I came to appreciate just how important it is to understand the appropriations process. Do you think, I mean, you worked on the Intelligence Select Committee on the House side. Mm -hmm. Were you still able to learn enough about the appropriations process from there? Or do you think you would encourage people to go to work on an appropriations 
committee. The appropriations committees are sort of the most powerful committees in Congress. And in fact, the members of the committee are often called the cardinals because they have so much power, like the College of Cardinals. So that's certainly a place where that's ground zero if you want to understand where the money comes from. But all of the other committees also have a lot of influence over what gets done by different agencies. Government programs need to be both authorized by an authorizing committee and have funds appropriated by the appropriations committee. So even though I worked on an authorizing committee, I had a great deal of insight into what the intelligence agencies were working on. And we had a fair amount of influence over what they could and couldn't do. In the process of developing our annual authorizing bill, we would get briefings as to what the agencies were proposing. And we would, in the legislation, give them guidance to say, well, you can do this, but you can't do that. Or you can have the money you requested for this program, but for that program, you can only have the money once you do A, B, and C. So it was a chance to have a real impact on how the intelligence community worked, but also more importantly, for my later career development, to get a great deal of insight into how the intelligence community does what it does. That's interesting you say that. So sitting on the House Select Committee for Intelligence, Mm -hmm. you didn't have a background other than your grad school studies in the intelligence world, and you learned it in addition to learning the legislative piece? A a little bit, yeah. To that point, I was really a consumer of intelligence. I had spent nine years on the Secretary of Defense's staff in the Pentagon. So I was developing policy or policy recommendations that were based in a large part on the intelligence analyses we got from the intelligence community. So I was a consumer of the information that the intelligence community produced. After that, I went to work for a defense contractor and did some intelligence work, doing some wargaming and things like that. But when I got to the Hill, I was really much more of a foreign policy and defense policy expert, not necessarily an intelligence expert. So it was really during the six years or so that I spent on the Intelligence Oversight Committee that I got insights into the nuts and bolts of how intelligence work was done. Many of my colleagues on the committee were older than I was and more senior than I was and had already spent careers of 20, 25, 30 years in one of the intelligence agencies. So they came to the committee with much more in-depth experience of how their agency worked. But to be fair, they also lacked the broader perspective of how the intelligence got applied by the policymakers who used it. That is such an important point, Larry. The fact that we go to jobs, so often we think of it as, what am I bringing to the job, which is an important piece, but it's also looking at that job as a place where you're going to learn. Absolutely. And grow. And also to look at a job as a way to bring whatever skills you have that an organization needs, but might not have enough of. So after I left the Hill, I went to the RAND Corporation, which is a leading think tank where 75 or 80% of the policy analysts have PhDs. And so there I was as the village idiot with a mere master's degree. But what I found was that a lot of these PhDs had deep expertise on the issues that they focused on, but they were writing, doing research and writing for policymakers, and they had no idea of how a policymaker might use their work product. So I reviewed a paper once where it was a book on overseas aerospace capabilities, and it was very in-depth, but it didn't answer the policymaker's question. It wasn't useful to a policymaker because it didn't explain how the information could be applied. So as the peer reviewer, that was the expertise I brought to the table. I couldn't have written the paper because I didn't have the deep expertise, but I did have the perspective of what the policy customer would do with the book. The most important, I mean, writing is such an incredible skill in any workplace, but you need to be able to write for your audience. If your audience is a defense department policymaker who commissioned a study, then you need to write your information in a way that's useful to that 
Defense Department policymaker. If your audience is a member of Congress on an oversight committee, then you better keep your memo to two or three paragraphs, add a few talking points on the end, and be done with it because that's all the member of Congress is going to have time to read. So it's really important to write for your audience. You've already touched on this in that you mentioned that at one point you went to work for a defense contractor. And I think it's a really important outlet or employer Mm -hmm. to flag to our young listeners because it's something that I don't think, I know you don't think, is surfaced enough when we talk about careers in national security, which tend to focus almost exclusively on government jobs. But you have a much more expansive view of this. And I think one example that I hope you're going to touch on involves the Magic Kingdom, right? Oh, yes, absolutely. So let me talk a little bit about contractors. You're right. People focus on government careers. And in fact, when I came out of graduate school, I knew I wanted to work for government. And I had no idea that there were all these companies out there that did much of the same work. So I now work for an association that represents a lot of these contractors and highlights the work that they do. So let me plug them a little bit. As an entry-level employee going into the field, if you go into a government agency, you're likely to have a specific portfolio and you'll be kind of narrowly focused for a while and you'll have a chance to develop some expertise, which is great. But if you're not sure what you want to do, maybe that's not the best first step. If you go to a contractor, then you'll have a chance to work over the first couple of years on a range of different contracts. So you'll be able to try out different sorts of issues. You'll be able to work for different agencies. You'll be able to work in different roles, different team environments. And so over the course of two or three or four years, you'll get a little bit of a tasting menu and get to decide what issues are interesting, what roles are interesting, what office environments are interesting. So early on in your career, working at a contractor is a really good first step to help you figure out what it is you want to do. Some examples of the firms that do this kind of work, especially for the intelligence community and the Defense Department, Booz Allen, Perspecta, Deloitte, Accenture, PwC, PricewaterhouseCoopers. Those are some of the bigger firms, SAIC and Lidos. Those are some of the bigger firms that do this kind of work. They and their staff do pretty much everything that government employees do, and in some cases more, because government agencies often turn to these firms when they don't have expertise in-house. Is it also that they turn to these firms because maybe there's been a hiring freeze and they're not able to bring on the employees? That does happen because when Congress authorizes funds to certain agencies, it authorizes people and it authorizes funding separately. So sometimes Congress decides not to give a government agency more people because there's a political trend toward shrinking government, but the agencies can use that money to go hire people who work for contractors. So that is the case. And sometimes those budgets get cut. So when when there's a downsizing in government, you don't see civil servants get laid off, not that often anyway, but you do see federal spending decline, which means less money for contracts, which means sometimes it can be hard to break into the contracting world. I wouldn't worry as a job seeker or as someone trying to figure out what to do about that ebb and flow in funding, but there are always opportunities to do work, interesting work, both cleared and uncleared at contractors. And by cleared and uncleared, you mean with security with security clearance yeah. or not. One challenge too, to get into a government agency, you need to get a job offer and then get a security clearance, which can take a year or more before you can walk in the door and start working. A lot of these contractors can hire you right away and assign you to a contract that doesn't require a security clearance, which lets you get good consulting and business skills and learn the business while 
you go through the investigation to get a security clearance. So some of the bigger firms can bring you on board, train you in the skills you need, and then when your clearance comes through, move you over to a classified contract and let you do work that's maybe more to your liking if you're interested in national security and foreign affairs issues. But that's a good option and a great way to not only get in the field, but get your security clearance, which is otherwise kind of hard to get. So the way you just described it reminded me that there is a young woman who I interviewed on Time for Coffee, Lauren Bose Hayes, who is now a cyber security analyst at, or it's maybe threat intelligence analyst mm-hmm. in the cybersecurity vertical at Facebook. Ah, yeah. But she was at Deloitte. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of movement between government and the private sector. And not when I say private sector, I mean the government contractors, but also commercial firms. There's a well-trodden path nowadays, and it's probably more so in the cyber field, where people start in government, they get good intelligence analysts training, tradecraft training. Then they move to a contractor where they do similar work, but maybe for more agencies, or maybe the reverse is true. They start at the contractor and go into government. And then they work for more of a commercial firm, like a Facebook, where they apply the same kind of threat analysis analysis, training they've received in government to whatever threats the company might face. Facebook, for example, might be hacking or information operation or whatever. And that gets to the example you mentioned about the Magic Kingdom. So I did know a woman who spent several years working in the intelligence community as a contractor. Then she went to work for another contractor doing similar work and then went to work for Disney as a counterterrorism analyst. And when she told me she was going to do that, I thought, why does Disney need counterterrorism analysts other than, I guess, to protect Disneyland from attack? And she said, well, that's one. But they also own ESPN and ABC News, which send journalists and camera crews and others all over the world, sometimes to dangerous places and war zones or big sporting events that might be a target. And so they need to stay on top of all these threats that might affect their people. And really from that, I learned that any large company that has people or facilities or even just a reputation to protect is going to have its own in-house threat intelligence analysis capability, or they will hire a company to do it for them. If you think about a company like Walmart, if their supply chain gets disrupted by hackers, by terrorists, by an attack on shipping, then they can't sell products. If Disneyland were attacked, people wouldn't come to Disneyland for a while until they felt safe. That would affect its business. So any company that's large enough to worry about these kinds of global threats is going to need intelligence analysts. That's a career path that didn't really exist 15 or 20 years ago. So they tend to hire people who already have some experience, whether in government or at a government contractor, because those are good places to get the foundational skills. But those are career options that are somewhat brand new and, importantly, that exist all over the country. You don't have to be inside the Beltway to do intelligence work anymore. You can go work for Disney in California. You can go work for SpaceX in California and look at threats of sabotage and threats of attack and hacking on their facilities. You can work at one of the 56 FBI field offices around the country in government and do intelligence analysis there. So you can do intelligence analysis really anywhere in the country as well as, of course, overseas. You brought up a really interesting point in our Espresso Shots episode regarding what you recommend young people learn while they're in school, not necessarily major in computer science, but to have a background in data analytics. Where do you think this industry is headed? You put us in context in terms of this didn't exist 15 years ago. Where do you see it heading? And I 
I know you don't have a crystal ball, but do you see any interesting twists and turns that it might be good to put in front of our young listeners? Absolutely. There is definitely a trend toward widespread use of artificial intelligence and machine learning. It used to be that if you wanted to understand, for example, what was going on in Iran at the grassroots level, you'd find some Iran expert who would read some papers, read some newspaper articles, read some speeches, and based on whatever they already knew in their heads, they'd come up with an assessment. Now you can go through millions of Twitter posts and do a sentiment analysis to get a sense of whether people are more agitated, angry about this, more tolerant of something else. And that's all data analysis. And the way to really make sense of that data is through things like machine learning and artificial intelligence that let you then predict, based on the data you have, what's likely to happen in the future. Now, you don't need to be a computer coder or an engineer to become an intelligence analyst nowadays, although those skills are certainly good. But you at least need to demonstrate some proficiency, some fluency in data analysis and in the software tools that are used to make sense of it. Because if you get on a job and that's an important part of your job, your employer will teach you whatever tool you need to use. But you need to be able to show that through your schoolwork or through an internship or whatever else, that you have some ability to work with large amounts of data and make sense of them. That is such great advice, Larry. So let's flash back a few years to when you were an undergrad. Oh, that's more than a few years, but okay. I was being generous. <laughs> <laughs> so you studied English. Where, where did you go to school? I went to the University of Pennsylvania, Penn in Philadelphia. Excellent school. Did you know what you were going to do with your English degree when you graduated? Well, I thought I did. I thought I was going to go to law school. And that went by the wayside at some point when I thought that I would like law school and not like being a lawyer. So I chucked that. But I became an English major because I liked it, because I thought the important thing was to learn how to research and write and communicate. And I could get that majoring in English or history or political science or really any social science or humanities kind of class. And then I just ended up applying it in a different way. So the skills that I got as an English major still ended up being useful. So how did you end up in the national security field? It's funny. I always knew, I think, that I wanted to do some sort of foreign affairs work. I always liked traveling. I was always interested in the wider world. What I didn't know in college, and frankly, even once I got to graduate school, and I went to the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts, which is an international affairs school, I really didn't know what the options were. I didn't have a good sense, other than going to work for the government, of what there was. So I kind of got there in, in a roundabout way. After college, I couldn't get a foreign affairs job that was both interesting and paid because most organizations told me to call them back either when I had a graduate degree or when I had some significant experience living overseas. So I worked at a public relations firm for two years, which gave me some good general business experience, taught me good writing and communication skills, and frankly, let me tread water a little bit while I figured out what kind of graduate school I wanted to go to and, and what I wanted to do. But but that was a perfectly good way to spend some time for a couple of years while I figured some things out. Terrific. So, Larry, we have two final Time for Coffee questions that I try to ask all my guests. And this one has to do with a time in your professional life when you struggled and how you came through the other side. We would not be doing a service to our young listeners if we didn't prepare them for a career that will have highs and lows. We've all experienced that. And the most important thing is to kind of try to build some grit mm -hmm. 
And I loved the earlier example you had about being proactive. That's Mm -hmm. one of the skills that you look for in the young people you hire. So if you would be kind enough to share just a quick story about a time you may have hit a wall how you came through the other side, and a lesson that you learned in the process. Yeah. So certainly it's not all roses. There was one time when I worked in an office in the Pentagon focused on Middle East policy when the administration changed from the Clinton administration to the Bush administration. And you may remember from some of the news reports, the Bush administration came in with a pretty clear sense of what it wanted to do in the Middle East. And the office I was in was very closely tied to the Office of Special Plans, which worked on the Iraq War. The political appointees who came into the office really didn't want the civil servants around. They had a very clear sense of what they wanted to accomplish. And the civil servants, like myself, who were offering unbiased expert advice, sort of got in the way. And there was one time when I was told specifically that I shouldn't write a certain memo This was my political appointee boss speaking. I shouldn't write a certain memo because I wouldn't be able to do so effectively given my political beliefs. Now, I had never talked about my political beliefs in the office, so they were making assumptions. And I insisted that I write the memo, which as it turned out, I happened to think was pretty crazy. But I thought, you know, I am a professional civil servant. This is my job. If you don't want me doing this, then I shouldn't be here. I should. You can get advice from whoever else. So I stood up for myself and wrote the memo that I frankly completely disagreed with and just made the point that as a civil servant, I'm a professional. I need to do what my job requires me to do. Now, as it turned out, that was a pretty toxic environment to work in. So that was an example where I had to stand up for myself. But I could see that over the long term, I was going to be beating my head against a wall pretty frequently. So I found a way out that still let me have an impact. I spent a year still serving as a Defense Department employee, but did a year as a fellow working in a congressional office in an individual House member's office. So that gave me the opportunity to learn how Congress worked, to learn where the money comes from, to learn how members of Congress work with their constituents and develop their own positions. And then I came back to the Pentagon after a year, but was able to reset and play a different role. So sometimes it's okay to retreat, do something different, and then come back. And it also speaks again to your great advice about being proactive. Instead of staying in that office, in that role, you went looking for another way to still be serving in government, but on the Hill. I could have stayed, but I wouldn't have felt like I was adding much value in a role like that. So I went and found another way where I could add value and sort of reset my career path. That's such a diplomatic way of putting it. (laughs) So final time for coffee question, Larry. If you could... Go back to college, go back to UPenn and do it all over again. But based on the wisdom that you have now, what advice would you give yourself? Yeah, I would say to take more risks. When I was in college, I was pretty set. I thought I knew what my career path was going to be. I thought I was going to go to law school and maybe do some kind of international law because that's kind of all I knew about. I knew lawyers growing up. I didn't know foreign policy wonks. And so I didn't really take a lot of risks. And it wasn't until my junior or senior year that I started taking classes on African politics and Middle Eastern history that suddenly made me realize, wow, this is interesting. I should find a way to do this for a living because this is what really motivates me. I would say the biggest regret I have, one of the biggest regrets I have in life, and maybe you'll appreciate this, is that I had an opportunity to go to Shanghai the year after college. And this was 1991 when not very many people, not very many Americans were going to China. I would have had an opportunity to go and teach English for a year. And I didn't take it because I was too focused on the career path that I thought I needed to take, which even though I shifted more towards foreign affairs, I thought, well, I need to get a foreign affairs job so I can apply to a foreign affairs graduate school so I can get that first 
professional foreign affairs job. And what I should have done is just taken a step back and said, you know what, I'm going to take a risk. I'm going to take a chance. This is a foreign affairs opportunity that would take me in a direction that I can't plan out but would be interesting nonetheless. So one of my biggest regrets is not taking that risk and going to Shanghai. Well, we might have met even sooner than we did. In Shanghai. (laughs) In Shanghai, because I ended up moving to Asia in 93 and was living in Japan and was going back and forth to China before I moved to China then in 95. Could have been. And then we would be talking over time for tea. (laughs) Which I also love. (laughs) I also love. Larry, thank you so much for making Time for Coffee with me and the Time for Coffee community. This was so fantastic. And it was such a treat to get to see you and do this in person. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.